Well, hey, brothers, this is Didact, and we are finally back with Didactic Mind episode 111, Slamming the Wall. A very warm welcome to all my Podbean subscribers, my long-suffering subscribers. You're probably wondering why the hell I don't update or do anything very often. Uh, partly because I'm lazy, actually mostly because I'm lazy, and partly because it's just, you know, it's hard to muster up the will to talk about things when everything is war and death and economic collapse and ruin and it's kind of depressing uh, after a while it's for the same reason that blog posts have been kind of uh, on the low side or slow side of late but nonetheless uh, very warm welcome to all of my uh, subscribers from the site from podbean from telegram if you're using the, the, the telegram channel if you are not, make sure you subscribe to the Telegram channel. There's a link in the description box. It's a very good platform uh, as, as far as social media goes. I don't use any of the other socials, really, uh, to communicate with people from the site. I just find it very annoying to have to deal with Twitter and Instagram and all the other crap. I don't, I don't even have accounts for the didact personality on those sites at all, and nor do I want to. Um, Facebook, I think, is just evil, uh, and Instagram isn't very much better. Uh, Twitter, I just follow a few accounts, such as Dmitry Medvedev, uh, Tucker Carlson, of course, Putin Direct, and one or two others, Jeremy Clarkson, of course. But I don't post there. I, I just have no interest in, in Twitter as, a, as an outreach method. But Telegram is great because it combines the best features out of all of these things into one platform. And on top of that, almost every night, not every night, but almost every night, I try to give my listeners a roughly five to ten minute rundown of kind of what's going on in the world. Uh, give people some idea of current developments, particularly with the Banderistan War, to, to help people understand kind of what is happening out there, what is, you know, percolating through the world of geopolitics, and sometimes just me rambling on about other stuff. Uh, while we're on the subject of other stuff, if you have not already subscribed for a VPN, make sure you do so using the links in the description box. Check out some of the other affiliate links that are uh, in down there. Uh, you may hear a click on occasion. Uh, that's a, a creak and a click. That's not me, actually. That's my standing desk. Um, Essentially, what's happening is I finally got my sort of standing desk converter out of storage. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I had to do without it for several years, actually, which was not fun. Um, but now that it's here, I mean, it takes up an enormous amount of space on my dining table, but it does allow me to stand and work. And I love it. In, in, in terms of having that ability back, it's phenomenal. The damn thing weighs 20 kilos, though, so you know you want to you want to do anything with it. You, you can't. It's it's impossible. But uh, it is a tremendous thing for ergonomics, for um, for anything related to productivity. I mean, I just find myself much more productive nowadays, particularly working from home when I'm using my standing desk because it's just easier to use a laptop and a mouse and keyboard and everything with that standing desk. But um, Today, I specifically wanted to uh, talk about geopolitics and about the kind of global strategic situation and, and the way things look right now. Um, this is the 
111th episode, which is kind of special. It's the 111st, as it were. Uh, or is it? Yeah, the 111st. Yeah, the 111st episode of Didactic Mind. Uh, yeah, that's correct. It is. It is my 111st birthday, as it were. Um, which is kind of a, always a special occasion. There aren't that many podcasts out there which last that long, but this one has. Albeit not for uh, not in terms of new content. It does take me a while to get around to kind of posting new stuff. But the take I wanted to offer up today is about the fundamental strategic and tactical miscalculation the West has made and the operational uh, disconnect between those two things and the reality that the West now confronts. Now, I've talked about this numerous times in the past, but I think it's becoming more obvious than ever just how big that disconnect is. And it's worth talking about because we are living through the destruction and death of empires, plural, and it's astonishing to watch. Uh, it is also uh, quite shocking in many ways, but it is, I think, necessary to go through these times to understand how empires break apart and to learn some very necessary, very painful lessons from the process. Now, if you look at the Western world, they made a fundamental strategic error in dealing with Russia and China. If you look at the people who control the West, it's really the same cabal of largely Jewish, not completely, but largely Jewish, neoconservatives uh, and neoliberals. There's not really a whole lot of difference between them. They're basically cut from the same cloth. Um, the important thing to understand is a neo-clown versus a neo-lib the only major difference is in terms of uh, the degree to which they think military power should be used to enforce specific aims and objectives. The neo-clowns generally also have one genetic difference, which is, again, a lot of them are Jewish. And a lot of them come from, not, not all of them, it's not, it's not quite that clean a division, obviously, but a lot of them are Jewish from with ancestry from Bessarabia and from what is today Novorossiya and will become the Novorossian states. So they're from actually the very bit of Ukraine and southwest Russia that the Russians and Ukrainians are fighting over. And many of them were expelled by the Bolsheviks back then for, ironically enough, being too radical too revolutionary, believe it or not. A lot of the progenitors of the neo-clowns were global revolutionaries. They believed in a one-world government of sort of communism, of utopian communism, Marxism, well, not, not Leninism, but pure Marxism. And that's what they wanted. And they didn't get it because Stalin was in power. And he essentially told them to get the hell out. Because he wanted, Stalin wanted specifically to concentrate on rebuilding the Soviet Union as an industrial powerhouse, which he did at, might I add, tremendous cost to the peoples of the Soviet republics, particularly the Russians. 
but he did manage to do what he set out to do, and he created an industrial empire. Um, the, the predominantly, but not completely, Jewish intellectuals, left-wing intellectuals who formed the core of that movement, went to the United States and, to a lesser extent, Europe, and eventually embedded themselves within the, both the left and the right in those countries. Now, today's neo-clowns and neo-libs essentially come, I mean, they've been the same throughout the generations, but they were called the hawks in the 1960s when they were in the Johnson administration. Uh, they were still called largely the hawks uh, while Reagan came to power. Unfortunately, and this is one of the things I think people rightly should criticize President Reagan for, he didn't tap down on them. Indeed, he gave them very high positions of power in his government. And they've been running rampant ever since. But the problem with the, the global homo pedo satanist movement has always been that they don't have a proper understanding of the real economy. Andrei Martyanov uh, has gone on and on and on about this. I mean, he constantly harps about this, and I think rightly so where he talks about how these people don't have any real practical, useful experience in the real world. And he's right, they don't. The people who, who make up this, this class, or this group, are basically academics. They have no real-world experience in anything to do with engineering, mathematics, science, uh, they've never worked a day in their lives outside of the academic fields. They don't have much experience working with their hands. They don't put much thought into how they get the food that they eat. They've never worked on a farm. They've never worked uh, in a, you know, an industrial plant of any kind. Now, I'm saying all of this even though I am kind of cut from the same cloth, although my background is in fairly serious mathematics, actually. Uh, I have also spent most of my life, you know, kind of in what you might consider very coddled circumstances. I make no apology for that. It was my upbringing, and, you know, I'm very grateful to my parents for giving me what they did. Uh, I make absolutely no pretense to have any insight, any deep insight into the life of a farmer or a mechanic or, uh, uh, you know, uh, a factory worker. The difference is I don't have contempt for them. I respect them because I know my life would not exist without these people. So I respect them and I want them to have good lives as well. I don't think it's right to outsource their jobs. I don't think economic efficiency is the be-all and end-all of everything. I do think that long-term investing and the, the idea of long-term investing in human and political and social capital is a good thing. So uh, decidedly not neoliberal ideas. Uh, and these, this, you know, sort of outlook on life comes from being a, essentially a student of the school of hard knocks. Uh, I've, I've had to learn a lot of very painful lessons along the way uh, as to how the real world functions, particularly from having worked in a banking background. But these people, because of their backgrounds, are unable to understand how the real world works. For that reason, they have made a profound strategic miscalculation. The entire aim of the global homo pedo satanist class was always 
to cement global dominance of the United States, of, well, really of their empire. I mean, they don't really see the United States as, in and of itself, anything other than a means to an end, which is of a global empire, a globe-spanning, completely hegemonic empire over which, which will have dominion over everything, over all resources, over all peoples, uh, and full control over everything. They always imagined that would happen. But there have always been pockets of strong resistance to that idea. And for the last, you know, 30 odd years, well, between 1990 and let's say 2010, basically, 20, I would even go so far as to say 2012, there was really no strong opposition to that ideology that the United States, the Western way was the best way. Because the only opposing power block had disappeared. I mean, the Soviet Union, the, the only balance had disappeared. And the problem is, again, the neo-clowns learned the wrong lesson from history. They started from the premise that Western liberal democratic values had defeated the Soviet Union. This is wrong. The, so the, the Cold War... The United States and the West, the, the NATO alliance, did not win the Cold War. And it's extremely important that we define things correctly. Otherwise, we can never extract proper meaning. We can never understand the world the way it is, rather than the way we want it to be. The Cold War was not a victory for the West. The reality is the Soviet Union and the West found a mutual negotiated solution to the Cold War. They ended it through a negotiated compromise solution. And that compromise expressed itself most clearly in the speech that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev gave to the United Nations in, I think, 1989. I think it was. Uh, in which he unilaterally dissolved the Warsaw Pact and kind of, you know, released the various states of the Warsaw Pact back out into, into the world, gave, gave them free direction. And then two years later, of course, the Soviet Union was gone. It collapsed. Now, a lot of people call Gorbachev the great peacemaker who deserved his Nobel Peace Prize for that reason. I firmly disagree. Uh, the Russian people today regard Gorbachev as, I mean, basically a traitor. They, they can't stand him. Uh, I am less harsh on Gorbachev's legacy than that. But I think to give Gorbachev all the credit is to do, give absolutely no credit to the man who brought the United States to the negotiating table. And that was Ronald Reagan. President Reagan was the man who did his utmost to build towards that possibility of a negotiated settlement. But once that negotiated settlement existed, the internal contradictions and economic fallacies of the Soviet Union destroyed it, and it could no longer sustain itself. From there came this myth of victory, political and economic victory, followed very shortly afterwards by the victory, the military victory against Saddam Hussein in Gulf War I, in Operation Desert Storm, in which essentially the the Western militaries became drunk on their own power. They got high on their own supply. Everyone says, you know, the Western military way is the best way because they watched 
precision guided missiles and you know smart bombs and stealth fighters and tanks rolling across the the desert destroying what was supposed to be a very formidable army at the time and wiping it off the field in a matter of days what most people forget is the United States and its allies took six months to prepare the battlefield, shape it, to you know stock up on supplies, to plan, to prepare, to get ready for that big push. And frankly, they were fighting an obsolete enemy. That's the reality of things. Uh, if you go look at Military Watch magazine, you know, contrary to, to, to public opinion, um, the reality is the United States F-15s faced very serious opposition from the very small number of Iraqi MiG-25s that were still in operation. A very tiny number of them. But there was, I believe, an F-15 that was damaged by an Iraqi MiG-25 at the time. Uh, if you go look it up, there was an engagement, I believe, at some point um, between the two and yeah they you know they it, it was it was a pretty kind of brown pants moment uh for for uh the people involved but the the overwhelming message coming out of gulf war 1 uh yeah here we go this uh there's an article on the engagement between the, the F-15 and the um, MiG-25 way back in the day. And effectively, when did it happen? Yep. Uh, it was a MiG-25, uh, single-seat MiG-25 interceptor unit. And uh, the MiG-25 actually shot down a U.S. Navy F-18. And then... The F-15 had, there was an F-15 engagement with a MiG-25 on January 30th. And the, uh, the MiG-25 itself actually lost. Uh, sorry, not the MiG-25, the F-15 itself actually lost. So, you know, that was the one and only engagement really where the Iraqi Air Force was able to put up a really serious fight. But even then, the Iraqis had enough high quality Soviet technology at the time to cause an air force a full generation ahead of it serious problems. So this myth of American military superiority was very much unfounded. Uh, it came about because there was no one else out there to test against, no one else to really pit themselves against and prove themselves against. Today, that mindset has carried over for 30 years. And we see today the inability of Western elites who've really gotten drunk on their own Kool-Aid to understand what they're up against. They've all believed for over a generation without any serious challenges to their way of thinking that the Western way of neoliberal financialized economics is best that kind of gutting your wholesale industries, outsourcing everything, building a service economy is the way to economic power and strength, and that the Western military uh, can beat up on anyone, you know, anytime, anywhere, because it's spent the last basically 20 years 
uh, fighting goat humpers in you know the rock pile and the sandbox. That's it. I mean, that's all they fought against, and they've lost. But the the elites have never paid a price for that. They've never had to pay a price for it because if you ever wanted a self-perpetuating system that rewards failure, democracy is a perfect example. This is exactly why I do not support democracy at all. It inevitably ends up perpetuating failure because the people in power never get removed. They always come in promising all sorts of nonsense. People are dumb enough to elect them, which inevitably happens. They get into power and then, of course, they become co-opted by the global elite. Uh, they pay to pay, they pay to play, they enter the club and they never come back out. So these mistakes have led them to seriously underestimate the technological depth and sophistication of the Russian economy and the manufacturing power of the Chinese economy. They don't also understand, because they're very materialistic in their worldview, completely so, they don't also understand the spiritual component at work behind it all. So the elites in the West have made one mistake after another, and they've made them at the strategic level, which is the most dangerous thing possible uh, when you're studying any kind of strategic or geopolitical uh, pattern or course of events. When you make a mistake, a fundamental mistake at the strategic level, there's very little you can do to recover it. Because you've literally failed Sun Tzu 101. You've failed the maxim of knowing yourself and knowing your enemy. Western elites today know neither themselves nor their enemy. They do not understand how badly gutted the Western economies have become, how hollowed out, how, uh, how poor, really, West, the, the Western economies have become, and how shaky the foundation is of those economies. And they do not understand what strength lies in the rest of the world because they spent too long in their own bubbles. They, they've spent far too long reinforcing their own delusions and their own illusions without thinking through the implications of their own ideas. They, to put it more, even more crudely than that, they've gotten high sniffing their own farts. It's that simple. Now, what does that mean for the long war? Well, it means the the West made a f severe and serious miscalculation. It went up against... Well, okay, so essentially the West wanted to eliminate all obstacles in its way. The Western elites, I should say. They wanted to eliminate all obstacles in their way to achieving this vision of global hegemony, which their fathers and their grandfathers wanted. And remember, keep in mind, those that lineage goes all the way back to the prince of this world. Ultimately, that's where it leads. Uh, and if you don't like that, well, just read what these people have written. This is what they all believe in. Ultimately, it comes down to the same idea. Uh, you shall be as gods. Well, you can't be as gods. There's no such thing. Humanity cannot rule itself. And so we have this situation where the West... The Western elites have looked around. They see a bunch of weak and squabbling, broken nations. You know, Latin America to the south, not particularly relevant. Africa, resource-rich, but, I mean, honestly, you know, if Africans could figure out how to manage themselves, they would have done it by now. They can't, so they won't. End of. 
there are only really a handful of powers anywhere in the world that can effectively resist Western domination. One is Russia because of its combination of immense energy wealth and resources, food, timber, raw materials of all kinds, metals. Uh, it's the extraordinary talent of its people. I mean, if you actually look back through time and you look at what the Russian people have accomplished in terms of technology and innovation and culture, it is amazing. Uh, these are really, really gifted and talented people. And I'm not saying that just because I've been to Russia several times. I'm saying that because it's true. And then you look to China, which is the world's, as they keep claiming, the world's oldest continuous civilization. I think there is some room to kind of argue with that simply because of what the Cultural Revolution did to China. But anyway, we'll grant them that. Oldest continuous civilization. Okay, fine. Uh, once upon a time outpaced the entire West in terms of technology, development, science, mathematics, literature, you name it. They were the world's leading power once upon a time. Uh, Iran, Persia, I mean, another extremely old ancient civilization with deep roots going back, you know, four or five thousand years, uh, well, about four thousand years. India, massive population, colossal uh, in terms of the real economy, a phenomenally deep and powerful economy in and of its, in, in, in its own right. And that's about it, actually, because everywhere else kind of is too small, too divided, too weak, or wants to play ball with the U.S. system. These are the countries which buck the trend and aren't interested in kind of playing the game. They want to court, they want to plot out their own courses of action. They, they have seen what the West has to offer. They're not interested. They're not interested in global homo, LGBTQ, WTF is this shit. They're not interested in, um, you know, mutilating children. They're not interested in, uh, promoting gender ideology, this insanity that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man or a man or a woman can pretend to be like dragons or furries or other kin or fairies or whatever. They're not interested in that. These are people who want to live their own way, their own lives. In Russia, they want to live by Orthodox Christian principles, by and large. They have large Muslim populations, but those Muslims swear loyalty to the Russian state. They see, you know, they, they, they consider themselves a civilization state, which Russia is. If you look at China, they consider themselves, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a Han-dominated empire. Yes, it's true. But if you actually look more deeply at what China does, and don't get me wrong, I don't like China. I don't like the way the Chinese government does things, but I can grant them very easily that the Chinese government actually does more to protect its so-called so persecuted people than the West does. I mean, if you look at uh, Xinjiang province, you know, all this stuff about the genocide of the Uyghur people, well, you know, look, you can say what you like about the genocide of the Uyghurs, but the fact is, if you actually look at Xinjiang and you look at the amount of economic development and the funds being poured in there by the central government in Beijing, they're doing something to improve the lives of ordinary citizens. And they're, you know, the, the Chinese, the Han Chinese, are the ones who've put the Uyghur language and the Uyghur customs up for you know, recognition as 
by uh, UNESCO or whatever, whatever, whatever it's called. Um, so something's not right. Something's not measuring up correctly. These are the civilization states that have to be conquered and destroyed for the global homopedo Satanist vision to work. So, to do so, they need to take out one of these two countries and the other four is in line. Well, the West, the Western elites figured the best and easiest place to start would be Russia. Because Russia, supposedly, according to them, is a gas station masquerading as a country. It's weak. It's easy to take out. It's easy to topple. And all you have to do is push hard enough and Russia will shatter into a you know, lots of small little republics, which you can then swoop in, grab, pillage for resources, and use those resources to build up the necessary war chest and military needed to go after China, which is resource poor. Now, if you think about it, that's actually not a bad idea. Assuming your fundamental kind of analysis is correct. Assuming that your assumption as it were, holds that Russia is in fact weak. And the problem is these people have never studied Russian history. They've never looked at what happens when Russia is threatened from outside. The entire society unites, it coalesces, it, it, it comes together around this core Russian identity, the Russian soul that people talk about and that I've actually seen for myself through repeated visits there. I know what these people are like. I know how tough they are. Uh, and I've only seen, you know, the, the, the surface of it. I know just how good and kind and strong the Russians really are. The Western elites don't know that because they don't understand these countries. They don't, again, they, they have no concept of a real economy and real hardship. They don't get it. So they pitted their forces against not a weak, broken, you know, useless power, but actually a fortress. They did what is called slamming the wall. In military terms, as far as I understand, and I don't pretend to be a military guy, so you know, if I misquote something, I apologize. But to my understanding, if you're slamming the wall, it means you, you direct all of your forces at the enemy's strongest point. It's a great way to break the enemy's resistance as quickly as possible. It's also a great way to destroy your own army. That's exactly what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. The RAND Corporation paper that dated back, you know, a few years, extending Russia, basically, you know, the RAND Corporation says, well, you've taken, everybody's taken that out of context. We didn't actually say what we really said, which is that if you engage Russia across a wide variety of fronts, you'll, you know, distract them and keep them off balance. And then you can kind of slide the, the knife in between their ribs uh, and that'll be that. Well, they didn't pay attention. They didn't realize what they were up against when they watched, of all people, Dmitry Medvedev uh, at the time was president of Russia, who ordered the 58th Army, which is an important formation because they're now the ones fighting uh, in, I believe, eastern Ukraine. Uh, I think they're the ones uh, sweeping, are they the ones defending in Zaporozhye? I think they are. Um, but basically, they're the ones right now playing a very important role holding down the fort and kind of smashing the Ukrainians in their, their sort of clearly catastrophic Great Hokolite Humvee counteroffensive, that thing. And it was Medvedev who ordered the Russian military to destroy Georgia. And again, a NATO-backed proxy at the time, which they did in three days. 
And it was Medvedev who fired Russian generals who said, ah, you know what, we, we don't have the military to do it. Now, the Russian general staff came out of that saying, yeah, we don't have a military capable of doing what we need to. They went back, and even though they were victorious, even though they they'd absolutely wiped out the Georgian military, they went back and they said, yeah, we really need to change a lot of our doctrines and, and, and operating practices because we're not ready for a big war. And that's exactly what they did. They reformed, they changed, and they rebuilt. And they got to the point where in 2022, the Russian military was well geared towards defending Russia. But the Russian military was not, expressly was not, capable of launching an offensive war. Which is why when Putin went in for the SMO, he did so with a very small force. Uh, as it turned out, he only sent in about 90,000 or so troops. They still achieved a great deal. I mean, they wiped out uh, the initial Ukrainian military pretty quickly and conquered a lot of territory very, very fast, established the boundaries that they needed to. But they weren't really able to do much more than that because there just weren't enough of them. Then, after the setbacks of the original Khokhlite Kharkov and Kherson counteroffensives, the Russians did take a few knocks. They went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, look, we need to mobilize, we need to prepare a real serious force, and we need to get ready for a long, grinding war. They've done that. And now they're stronger and more capable than ever. The Russian military today has an army of conquest designed specifically to break Ukraine, which is essentially a NATO proxy military at this point in time. So the miscalculation at the strategic level has been dire. It's been fatal, actually. The the Western elites thought they could break Russia by attacking using Ukraine as their proxy. They made a fundamental error. They thought that by breaking up Russia, they could prepare the ground to break up China, which would have been a sound approach if they'd gotten their assumptions right about Russia. As I said, they got them completely wrong. So now they're slamming the wall, trying to break up Russia as fast as possible. They're pouring more resources, more effort, more uh, weapons, more money into a war they cannot win. They have engaged in what is known as the sunk cost fallacy in economics, where you've invested so much that if you pull back now, you're going to face a terrible loss. The problem with that approach, that way of thinking, is that if you invest more, you're never going to get any of it back. So you end up doubling and tripling and quadrupling down continuously until you are literally bankrupt. The sunk cost fallacy is a psychological problem that all of us fall prey to at some point or another. We get too invested financially, emotionally, uh, into something that really doesn't, isn't worth it. I mean, almost all of us as men can refer back to at least one relationship that we've had in the past with a woman where we're like, we put our heart and soul into it and we thought we'd get something out of it. We thought we'd get something good and we never did. And the woman turned out to be not the woman we thought. It, it, most of us have had that experience. It's not fun. It's, it's really painful, but it is what it is. Many of us, not all, have had the good sense to say, okay, you know what? That's it. Draw a line in the sand. That's it. It's, it's over. I'm done. 
walk away, shake hands, walk away, you know, that's it. The neo-clowns, the Western elites can't do that because again, they don't understand anything about how the real world works. They're completely fundamentally disconnected from the real economy, from the real world. They can't do it. So we now face a situation where they're going to continue pushing and pushing and pushing on a string. And this is where we find ourselves right now. The Ukrainian military, based on some of the most credible estimates I've seen, have lost somewhere around 300,000 dead. Now, I know there's a lot of argument about this. I mean, I've had these arguments, and they are arguments, with people I respect. Lieutenant Colonel Tom Kratman, who reads my site, uh, has, has remarked repeatedly that he thinks the total death toll is about 40,000 on each side. Uh, the Russians are probably about doing about 20% better in terms of total casualties. Look, I'm sorry, but that's just not true. And the video evidence proves it. You can find video after video, picture after picture, hundreds, thousands of them on Russian Telegram alone. You can find them on Ukrainian Telegram. You can find them on independent Telegram channels. You can find them on independent media of burnt and broken Western equipment and you know Ukrainian tanks as well all over southern and eastern Ukraine, of bodies in the thousands. I mean, just, you know, men walking along the, um, the, the battle lines in the aftermath of a serious engagement. These Russian guys are walking along filming it, and they'll be like, yeah, uh, there's a body there, a body there, a body there. You know, they walk along, and you see at least a dozen bodies. And this is against a force of maybe 10 Russians. And the Russians themselves are like, yeah, we... We didn't, we didn't really lose anyone. Uh, we lost, you know, we had a couple of guys wounded. Otherwise, we're fine. Um, that story has repeated itself across the battlefield for 18 months almost. Now, that's not to say the Russians haven't taken casualties. They have. I mean, the most credible estimate I think I've seen is probably around 40,000 dead. I would say that's an effective lower bound. Uh, but it's not much more than that. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because if you look at the satellite imagery of uh, Ukrainian graves and Ukrainian grave sites around their biggest cities, the situation is the same in every case. I mean, there was a, a really quite horrifying uh, report from today, actually, on, um, uh, on an Intel channel that posts on Telegram. And they said if, the, if they looked at satellite imagery studying seven uh, cemeteries of Ukrainian cities, Zhitomir, uh, Tuivorog, Chernovtsi, Ravno, Zaporozhye, and Dnipropetrovsk. So, I mean, these are Russian names for these cities. They found the number of graves per year was triple the pre-war number. Uh, if you extrapolate that nationwide, they calculate Ukraine has buried 350 to 400,000 war dead. And the numbers are really thought to be much, much higher than that. I've seen a source that indicates from within the Ukrainian SBU, uh, the Ukrainians themselves acknowledge 310,000 dead within the SBU itself. I've seen another source that says, you know, the Ukrainians um, within their own general staff are saying about 284,000 dead. The, there's a, a memo which uh, went from General Sirsky to General Zaluzhny. Uh, Sirsky is fighting or leading the troops in uh, and around Artyomovsk, the now Russian Artyomovsk, what used to be Bakhmut, and he's desperately trying to take it back. 
And this memo basically says, we're losing everybody, everyone's dying, I have to send my elite units into this, this meat grinder and they're all getting killed. We're, we're achieving nothing. I mean, the picture, the, the, the images from the front line in Ukraine are apocalyptic. I, there's a, a, a viral video out there right now of one Russian tank effectively defeating an entire column of like eight Ukrainian vehicles. Now, you know, it's not quite as simple as that. There's another tank in the background. Scott Ritter did a, Major Ritter did an excellent analysis of the video in which he pointed out, look, there's a lot going on here that you can't see, that you need a military professional's eye to understand. He's completely right. I 100% agree with him. He's totally right about that. Uh, but the reality is the Ukrainians are losing this war and they're losing it very, very badly. The number of dead bodies is just horrifying. The Russian Ministry of Defense um, estimates that the number of annihilated personnel among the uh, VCU, the armed forces of Ukraine, in June alone was 26,000. Now, uh, the, the word in Russian, means annihilated. So does that mean dead? Well, I mean, okay, it's not pagib or pagibli. Uh, which would mean, you know, they, they died. Uh, it mean, it could be interpreted to mean dead and severely wounded. Okay. But still, I mean, that's a pretty catastrophic loss rate. In July, it's, the Russians estimate 21,000, uh, and that gives you some idea of the scale of the losses. I mean, basically 45,000 47,000 uh, destroyed, annihilated personnel in the space of two months is just a horrendous total. But that's the reality of this war. So the strategic mistake has, has, has translated into tactical catastrophe on the battlefield. The Ukrainians are running out of men. They're running out of machines. They're running out of ammunition. They're running out of everything. Even the Ukrainians themselves acknowledge this. There's growing evidence from the front line, you know, even expressed through Western mouthpieces. I mean, don't get me wrong, I can't stand Western prostitutes. As far as I'm concerned, you know, use the Sherman solution or the, the, the Pinochet uh, approach to dealing with these people. Uh, that would be kindest for everybody. But the reality is the number of articles appearing on the Clown News Network or Politico or the Washington Compost or the New York effing slimes or, you know, real like British toilet paper substitutes like the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Times, uh, the Spectator, you know, Boris, the, the spectacle really, uh, the Daily Fail, all of these like absolute rags, they all say the same thing. Ukraine is getting its ass kicked in you know, in this war against Russia. And not only that, but they're resorting to sending foreign mercenaries in large numbers to die in horrifying ways. And a lot of those are Poles, Americans, Brits, some Colombians, uh, but predominantly Polish and American, really. And they're all getting slaughtered out there in Ukraine. This is not a war the West can win. It's that simple. The, the West thought it could use Ukraine as a proxy to fight against Russia, and they failed. The Ukrainians were the best trained and best equipped proxy the West ever had. 
and they're running out of men and time. The West itself does not have serious military power. The only country that could really pose a serious threat is the United States. I mean, a threat to Russia. But its military, too, is very weak, actually. It's not capable of putting up the kind of fight and projecting the kind of power that it once could. If you actually look at the ammunition reserves of the U.S. military, the personnel issues, the equipment issues, I mean, you look at the F-35, right? And that is a classic example. The U.S. Air Force would not be able to manage anything like the operational tempo of the Russian Air Force. The Russians are capable of flying 1,200 sorties a day. They've done it in the past. They're capable of running several hundred sorties a day on their own. And that is despite the relatively high maintenance requirement, requirements of their very advanced 4++-gen fighter and bomber fleets. They are capable of using standoff strike weapons at ranges the United States simply cannot match. The U.S. doesn't have the technological edge anymore. It hasn't had that edge for a long time. The Russians have now incorporated all of the necessary doctrines for what we'd call net-centric warfare of you know, complete integration of drone technology into their uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, into their command, control, computers, communications, essentially their C4 ISR complexes. They've done it all. The United States came up with the idea, but the Russians perfected it. And actually, one could, one could take issue with that, the, the idea that the U.S. invented it. Uh, because net-centric or networked warfare dates back to Soviet times. Again, as Andrei Martyanov has pointed out repeatedly, this idea of networking your systems together and having them all jointly operate, particularly uh, with respect to missile defense and missile attack, is something the Soviets really did very, very well. So the Russians have never forgotten that. They've never left that legacy behind. If you look at the way the Russians fight today, it's all integrated. They're, they've got their satellites feeding data to their troops on the ground. They've got drones constantly buzzing overhead, feeding back coordinates to their artillery guys who are lobbing shells over at the Ukrainians. If they miss something, their infantry will tell them, you know, adjust your aim here, here, and here. They'll send in their infantry to mop up. The infantry runs into problems. They'll call up some tanks. The tanks will come in. They will be communicating with aircraft in the sky, either helicopters or, uh, or, or fighter jets, especially uh, Su-34 fighter bombers, the Helducks, uh, which, you know, they'll all have the latest in electronics and liquid crystal displays and all the, the other, you know, mod cons that they need. And all of this will be going back to the, uh, uh, the goal, the GOU, the Главная Operativная Управления, uh, basically the Russian general staff, the, the Russian planning staff, as, as Grandpa Grumpus would put it. And he's right. I mean, this is what they do. You know, completely kitted out with the latest in computing technology, capable of displaying the whole battlefield uh, in, and projecting it and showing exactly what's going on, uh, completely and fully capable of planning the war down to pretty much the last detail. This is what the Western Empire is up against, and it doesn't know who it's fighting. Now, the mistake the West made was in tackling Russia first when it should have tackled China first. But the reality is there was no way it could win that war either. Because if they tried to take on China, they would have taken on the world's largest manufacturing power, which has 
multiples the manufacturing capability of the United States and Europe combined. There is simply no way they could have attacked China and won on a military front if it came down to a straight-up shooting war. Couldn't be done. They could have attacked China financially and cut it off from Western banking and financial systems. And that could have worked, actually. Here's why. If you look at the Russian payment systems, they, the Russians have effectively developed their own payment system in the wake of the 2014 sanctions against them after they uh, annexed Crimea and after the Crimean Peninsula voted at like 96% rates to rejoin Russia. They developed their own SPFS, Sistema, Sistema Poter, no, Sistema, what was it called? Uh, oh yeah, Sistema Peredaci Finansovich Sobsheni, literally a system for sending financial messages. I mean, <laughs> Russian is a very literal language in that, in that way. And they, they then built on top of that a backbone, which... Um, well, they used that to create the backbone and then they built on top of it the, uh, the um, uh, what's it called? Uh, SBP, basically. Um, essentially, Sistema Buistrich Pathege, System of Faster Payments. That's, that's what it is. And they built into it the ability to run MasterCard and Visa and Amex payment rails. So, you know, Rather than having separate payment networks that these three big payments companies could use, they all had to use the Russian system and then collect their payments at the end of the month or, you know, whenever and kind of process them as transfer payments effectively out of the country. That's all gone, but the core banking system has remained. The thing is, the Chinese have never really developed that level of sophistication. Don't get me wrong. The Chinese through, um, through WeChat, and the union pay kind of networks have incredibly deep and powerful systems themselves for domestic payments. That's absolutely true. And I mean, they are the world leaders in terms of volumes. No one else comes close. Visa is the biggest. And if you look at union pay volumes, Visa, I mean, it, it's, it's a fraction of what union pay manages every year. And Visa is by far the biggest. And MasterCard comes second in a Visa has like double the payments volume of MasterCard. Um, but if you look at what the Chinese are capable of, they have the systems for domestic payments, but they still have huge exposure globally. They hadn't had the time or the, the kind of the impetus to develop their own sealed off uh, approach to payments, like the way the Russians did. They also haven't, they also have much more dependency on Western technology and resources than Russia has ever had. And that comes through very clearly in the kind of the, the, the technologies that they've built. When, uh, when Huawei was effectively shut out of the US market, they had to come up with their own version of Google's Android operating system, which they did, but they haven't translated that across the entire Chinese market. They haven't translated it into something like, you know, Oxygen OS, which is independent from Google entirely. They haven't done that. 
Oppo's OnePlus division still uses Google's operating system, for example. They haven't yet developed all the alternatives that they need to the way the Russians have. Their uh, Comac, um, was a, whatever it's called, that, that new jet that the Chinese are working on, it's not actually a Chinese jet. It's only about 10% Chinese, purely Chinese components. Whereas the MS-21 and uh, especially the more modern Suhoi superjets, SSJ-100s, are all essentially 100% Russian sourced. Uh, you know, the, the Russian destroyers that they actually depended very heavily, was it destroyers or icebreakers? I forget. But they actually had a very strong dependency on Ukrainian engine components up until about 2014, 2015. And then very painfully, they had to rejig that away from their dependency on a hostile power. But they did it. So we have a situation today where the Russians are now exporting their equipment to everyone else that wants it. You know, just today, in fact, um, essentially a Russian reactor for a Chinese nuclear power plant just arrived in the country. The Chinese don't have the level of independence, in other words, the Russians do. The West made a critical and catastrophic mistake by going after Russia first. They could have gone after China. It wouldn't have been as successful because, well, it wouldn't really have been successful at all because, again, China is a colossus, an economic powerhouse, the likes of which the United States can no longer match. And we're now in the situation where we're kind of replaying in some ways as our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Voxamort, the most malevolent and terrible, has pointed out, we're kind of replaying a World War II scenario where China has taken over the role of the United States as the world's manufacturing colossus. The United States is now playing the role of Nazi Germany. And if that offends you Americans, well, you know, I, what do you want me to say? I mean, look at your government. All I can tell you is these people hate you. They want you destroyed. They don't want you to have any kind of real freedom. That's why they pretend uh, to give you elections. You, pe you people seem to buy it every time. They pretend that they care about what you think. They really don't. I mean, there is no such thing as democracy in the West anymore. There's only democracy. And you people keep falling for it. So... <laughs> What can I say? Um, it, it's not even, you know, the, the, the sham or the pretense that it is in China. And by the way, in China, the CPC, the Communist Party of China, can legitimately claim far greater representation, proportionally speaking, among the people than any Western political party can because of the sheer number of party members within the country. No other Western political organization can claim to have that level of loyalty and representation among the people. It just doesn't exist. So, you know, let's stop with this kind of West is best and the rest is garbage. That's not true. Instead, what we should be aiming for over the next five, ten years is a recalibration of the world where the West simply becomes one of many ways of doing things, and hopefully one that's less mindlessly aggressive, less stupid, uh, less expansionistic, less inclined to shoot first and ask questions later, and one that rediscovers the art of diplomacy, 
one that understands the best way to engage with the world is to negotiate with it, that you don't necessarily have to agree with everyone you meet to build constructive relationships, that you can dislike each other intensely, but still respect each other enough to work together on the things you agree with. The West's fundamental problem is it's an ideologically-led block. Everyone in the West has to think one way or else you're excommunicated from polite society. Well, that's just stupid. Because, you know, if you, if you live in Russia, that's not the way things are. You can fu fundamentally and violently, vehemently disagree with Yedinaya uh, Rossiya, the you know, United Russia Party, with Putin himself. You can do that. And a lot of people do. But on the subjects that matter, you can still get along just fine. I mean, there are actual outright communists in Russia today. And people who know me know what I think of communists. I really do think it should be legal to shoot communists because of what communist, communism has done. You know, I think it should be a legal form of self-defense because of what communists have done to the world. But if you look at communists in Russia... They're not interested in that kind of communism anymore. They're just not. And as, you know, it's a whole discussion for another time, but you can actually get along with these people. And you may not agree with them about everything, but you don't have to disrespect them. You can still trade with them. You can still have commerce with them. You can still engage with them. And that's where the world needs to head. That's the direction we all need to go in. And that's what BRICS the, you know, the new Sino-Russian-led approach to things is taking us. That's where we're going. Um, let's hope sooner rather than later, and let's hope the West finally gets a clue. Uh, but I think we're in for some very, very harsh and terrible times before that happens. Well, that's it from me. I hope this has been somewhat educational and useful. Uh, but as always, be sure to check out the affiliate links, be sure to check out the site, be sure to check out uh, the Telegram channel if you haven't done so already. Make sure you subscribe, make sure you subscribe to the mailing list, check out the actual uh, Podbean subscription list as well. Uh, check out Surfshark VPN if you haven't already got your VPN organized, make sure you do because otherwise uh, we're all in a lot of trouble. Um, there's no such thing as a free internet anymore and hasn't been for a long time. But get yourself a VPN, get yourself a Bible, get yourself uh, all the tools that you need to survive what's coming. And I will catch you on the next one. Uh, many thanks, as always, to all of my longtime subscribers for staying with me, for tolerating long absences. Hopefully this will not be the case in future. And uh, I hope to have some special news in the coming days about uh, possible trip to Russia as well. It's been quite a long time. Uh, at any rate, that's it from me, Strength and Honor Brothers. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 111, Slamming the Wall, and I am Didact, signing off.